You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. And I had got the England goalkeeper to write for Tiger every week, which was an enormous scoop. And on the train back, I can remember thinking, well, I've done this. How can I afford it? I've got Roy the Rovers to write a letter to the London Evening Standard. They printed it and responded to it. And I thought, hey, this is quite good. Let's do more of this. And eventually then I wrote things into the storyline which would get publicity. Like Roy the Rovers being the first boys comic hero to get married. First boys comic hero to become a father. And each of those got us enormous publicity. Roy never spoke with an accent. We never gave any hint out whereabouts in the country Manchester was. It's just around the corner from me and it's just around the corner from you. So it's your local team. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. Now this is a privilege. My guest this time is Barry Tomlinson. Now I didn't know the name Barry Tomlinson until a couple of months ago. However, he played a major part in my childhood because Barry Tomlinson was the editor of Tiger and Scorcher magazine, comic, when I was growing up. That's the magazine I took, and my brother took Roy of the Rovers, and Barry was the editor of that too. Roy Race, of course, a famous fictional footballer, England's greatest name ever, played for Melchester Rovers, player-manager, player-manager of England as well, I believe. And we talk about the content strategy behind Tiger and Scorcher and Roy the Rovers and what they did in that very different time to ensure that their products came out, they were engaged with their audience and all those issues that we talk about now in terms of content strategy. But of course, they weren't digital and they were dealing with children. But of course, let's not denounce and decry the skill in putting together a great comic because comics in the DC and Marvel world are holding up the film industry at the moment. If you want to contact me, my name is Richard Clark, as I said. You can go to my website, mrrichardclark.com. I'm a sports digital consultant, so if you need one of those, please do let me know. I've got a book out at the moment on cricket called Last Wicket Stand. Check that out on Amazon, Last Wicket Stand. You can also order that through my website as well, as I say, Mr. Richard Clark. But that's the end of the sales pitch. Let's go back to my childhood, maybe your childhood, 40 years ago, and talk about great comics in the past, great characters, and just a very different type of content strategy with the man behind Roy Race, this man. My name is Barry Tomlinson, and I was group editor of the Sport and Adventure Department at IPC Magazines. Under that capacity, I was responsible for comics such as Tiger, Roy the Rovers, Scream, Speed, Eagle, and a few others as well. <laughs> Thanks for speaking to me, Barry. Now, confessions, first of all, I was a Tiger and Scorcher reader. I used to thoroughly enjoy it. My brother had Roy of the Rovers. So your work is a, a strong part of my childhood, and you must hear that a lot, I'm sure. But when you first got to take over uh, Tiger, which I think was in 1969. What was your, your approach, having spent already a, a good period of time in, in boys' comics? 
I worked on Lion and Tiger as a sub-editor. And when I became editor of Tiger, I wanted to modernize the comic, give it a new look. And very fortunately, just before I took over as editor, it switched to web offset printing from letterpress. So we had a much better printing process, which gave me an opportunity to print more photographs and do more features. And the whole look of the comic improved enormously through that new printing process. And I remember you had one of your uh, editors when you're a sub-editor was, was Bernard Smith. And you've talked about what he taught you in terms of the organization and the, and the systems involved in producing a comic. So could you just tell me very basically what that was, the way you organized it, your systems? Yes, I, I base my system as an editor totally on what Bernard Smith had taught me because I went into the business knowing really not very much at all about production publications. And he taught me the basic system, how to keep a record of scriptwriters, artists, so that you knew at any time where any piece of artwork was. And he had a very detailed book, which we called a detailed book, which gave, gave all the details of every story in the comic every single week. And it was a wonderful record of what we were producing and something you could refer to at any time. So his system, the basic system, is one that I stuck to throughout my career in comics. And what particular skills got you into comics? Because I, I don't think you're an artist, but you, you did write stories and you did sub-edit as well. So what were your particular skills you, you thought that were applicable to comics when you first entered the industry? I had no skills whatsoever. Oh. <laughs> I applied for a job at the National News Agent magazine and I had an interview and the editor said, you're not quite right for this magazine, but I've seen this advertisement recently. I think you'd be good for this. And the advertisement said, beginners wanted for Jordan's comics. So I was a beginner, so I applied for it. And I got the job knowing absolutely nothing about comic production. I wasn't a comic fanatic at all. I'd, I'd read comics as a boy, but I wasn't deeply involved in comics or the history of comics. When I was young, a young lad, I read Dandy, Beano, Radio Fun, and the original Eagle. So I grew up reading those comics, but certainly wouldn't call myself an expert at all. So I had to go in two freeway publications and start from scratch. And when you took over Tiger, one of the key things you did, because it had been sport and adventure in terms of its main topics, and you made it all sport, why did you do that? Well, I knew that sport was enormously popular with the young readership. And it seemed to me that there were other comics that were doing adventure stories. And I wanted to make Tiger a specialist comic, so we made it all sport, which was a little bit difficult because I had to get rid of long running stories such as Olak the Gladiator, which was a popular story, but uh, it wasn't sport. And um, other stories like Typhoon Tracy, the strong man, I was able to convert that to sport quite easily. So we eventually, I eventually changed all the stories to sports stories and put more feature pages in. I was a great fan of big photographs because I thought children liked cutting out photographs, sticking them on their bedroom wall. 
So we increased the feature content and made all the stories sports stories. And that combination seemed to work very well. And the offset printing, you already spoken about that, but that allowed you to print those large pictures. Did you ask anything particular of your photographers or were you using agencies? But I remember cutting out pictures of my team groups. I remember the Essex team group. I'm a big cricket fan, just written a book about it. And I've written about the fact that all those team groups, that was the only way to get team groups of cricket teams or football teams. They were in the middle and you had to unhook the staple and it was very difficult but but you know what was your approach to pictures because it seemed to be central in terms of one of those uh, big changes that you made helped by the technology of course yes the, the big picture policy was one i introduced and i thought it would be popular and it certainly was once you mastered how to get the staples open without cutting your fingers <laughs> yeah that, i remember doing that i remember doing that um so let's let's talk about your celebrity sportsman well celebrities and sportsmen actually because i remember uh jeff boycott was writing in tiger and i remember he had big panels with pictures on of how to um coach kids i remember you used to hold your little fingers together in order to catch the ball in the deep and i always did that throughout my cricketing career overlap my little fingers because Jeff Boycott told me to in Tiger. Um, but you had lots of big names. Jeff Boycott was one. You had Gordon Banks, Alf Ramsey, even managed Melchester Rovers for a little bit. So how did you get those big names involved and, and why did you go after them? Well, after increasing the sports content of Tiger, I thought I'd introduce a Tiger Sports Star of the Year competition where the readers could vote for their favorite sports star that year. And I thought this would be good because the footballer will win it. And that would be great for the readership, great for the editorial side of it. But the first winner was Ann Jones, the tennis player. And not only was she not a footballer, she was a lady as well. And I was totally surprised by this. So the second year, we decided that we would nominate about 12 people who, who were worthy of being selected for the top 12. I think what was happening before was all the football fans were voting, voting for their favourite footballer of their local team. So the football vote was hopelessly split. So the second year we did it a different way by nominating sports stars from all different sorts of sports but probably only one or two footballers. And the first winner was Gordon Banks, the England World Cup winning goalkeeper. So I took the Tiger Trophy and went up to Stoke to present the trophy to Gordon on the pitch at the Stoke City ground. And we had a good chat. And I said to him, well, you're the World Cup winner. You must have an awful lot of work going on off the pitch articles and so on. And he said, well, I've got nothing at all. And thinking very quickly, because I hadn't gone there with this intention, I said, well, how would you like to write for Tiger? He said, I'd love to. So we, I signed him up on the spot and I had got the England goalkeeper to write for Tiger every week, which was an enormous scoop. And on the train back, I can remember thinking, well, I've done this, how can I afford it? 
So I had to look at taking out one of the picture strips from Tiger and putting the Gordon Banks articles there instead, hoping that the readership would like that, and certainly they did. So we had our first star writer in Gordon Banks. And you also had a major coup when you launched Roy of the Rovers in a separate magazine in 76, because the Duke of Edinburgh wrote in the first issue. How on earth did you get the Duke of Edinburgh to write well, about Roy Rovers? It seemed a good idea at the time. <laughs> I wrote to the palace and um, when I first wrote, I asked him if he'd write an article for Tiger. And he said he would. But in the meantime, I was asked to produce a new football comic, which I suggested should be called Roy the Rovers and the management agreed. And we had Roy the Rovers planned. So I wrote to the palace again and said, look, would you mind if your article went in the first issue? of Roy the Rovers rather than in Tiger. And once again, he agreed and did the article for us and sent it in. And I thought it was fine, but he hadn't signed it. So I sent it back and said, can you sign it? <laughs> so he signed it and we published the signature at the end of the article in that first issue of Roy the Rovers. So that was quite a scoop to get him to write for a children's comic. Interesting you mention the signature because you also signed yourself as an editor or you named yourself as an editor which i'm not sure was done that often the, the piece by the editor at the start of the comic and i didn't you also um tend to give credit to the um, um artists and the storyline writers as well the concept of personalising the story, making the creations uh, come to life a little bit more by uh, connecting them with the, with the creator. Is, is that something you were, were deliberately trying to bring together? Well, actually, we didn't do that. Um, oh, sorry. didn't give credits to the writers or the artists or the letterers. Um, it was 2000 AD that introduced that. And it had been a tradition for a long time that you didn't reveal who the contributors were. But when I first started as a sub-editor, one of my jobs was when the script came in from the author to cut the author's name and address off the front of the script. So when it was sent to the artist, the artist wouldn't know any details at all about the writer in case they were poached by DC Thompson's or somebody. <laughs> But I'm so right. We didn't put credits on until very, very late. Certainly never in Tiger or Roy the Rovers. But it did happen in 2000 AD when it was under your overall editorship. Is that, is that right? Yeah, 2000 AD was only very briefly in my group. What was happening was they asked, I was producing Tiger and Roy the Rovers, and they asked me to produce a feature football magazine. For young people and I did that right up to the dummy stage and just a couple of weeks before I was due to launch it from my group they decided it was coming out of my group and going into the shoot group and to keep me happy they said right you can have 2000 AD in battle in your group so that's how 2000 came into it and because it was doing so well 2000, I never really interfered greatly in that. 
I was very much a hands-on editor for Tiger of Roy the Rovers and other titles, but 2000 AD was going all right, so I saw no reason to change anything at all. Just getting back to Tiger um, and Roy the Rovers, but I think especially Tiger, one thing that always struck me, and this is a lesson for content strategy everywhere, is you were very cognizant of feedback. Now, these days, feedback is a reply to a tweet or a like on a tweet or everything is very immediate. Even when I started in newspapers back in the 90s, it, it was via post or the occasional phone call or what people said to you in the street. And you were very aware of the feedback from the kids to such an extent that you asked them, every correspondence had to have their favorite two characters listed. Am I right in saying that? And, and, and if so, why did you be so prescriptive about it? Yes, we always asked them to name their top two stories. And I kept a great big graph on my wall showing how popular stories were from week to week. So if we saw that the popularity of the story had gone down, I could look at what date it happened, then look at that issue and see what was wrong with that particular instalment. So it gave us a very good guide of what readers liked and disliked. And I also introduced at the bottom right-hand corner of every story, my marks out of 10 for this story. And the readers could give their marks out of 10 for it. And they, they liked doing that because they were fed up with their teachers marking all their work. So for them to have a chance to mark somebody else out of 10 was quite popular. And it was a good way for us to keep in touch of what was popular and what wasn't. How many kids were sending in their favourite uh, two stories each week? I mean, how big a, of that sample size, how big was it on a weekly basis? Because you've got a chart going up and down, but you know, if it's only... 20 people it's skewed but i presume it was in the in the hundreds if not thousands right oh yes it was hundreds and hundreds yes and it would go up to a thousand if there was a particular event going on in that issue which was creating interest either for or against what was going on talking of roy the rovers in the first issue of roy the rovers i introduced the royal race talking where readers could actually phone roy the rovers leave a question leave a comment and this was just about the first time that readers could telephone one of their comic book heroes and say what they thought about things. So much so that the apparatus we set up to record all the calls virtually blew up the first weekend. We had so many calls that on a, Saturday, on a Sunday morning, um, I was called in back to my office in London to get the machine sorted out, which was overheating and was absolutely full. We had to put new tapes onto it. And from then on, we had bigger tapes because the response was absolutely enormous. And once again, very helpful for us to know how they were thinking about the new publication. And I think you've spoken before about the fact that you were so aware of the feedback from the kids um, that not only were you having the phone lines, having the boxes, the, the, the clips that people could, could send their preferences in via letter. But you also went into schools deliberately to get feedback. And you make, almost made a roadshow of it as well. Am I right in thinking that? Just tell me how, how those worked. Yes, that was something quite new, that we were visiting schools on a regular basis. And to sit down 
with the children and exchange views with them was very, very useful. And leading on from that, I organised a few get-togethers where readers could come in to somewhere in London to meet the artists, to meet the writers, to meet the editorial staff, and once again, exchange views with us. And that made the readers feel very much part of things. I also, in the publications, featured photographs of myself, sometimes with celebrities, sometimes not. But I thought it was good that readers could identify with the editor and know a thing or two about him. When I read the original Eagle, Marcus Morris was the editor and he published his name and his photograph from time to time. And it made me relate to what was happening in that publication. And I wanted to do the same thing in my publications. Some people said, you're just publicity seeking for yourself, but I wasn't. It was a way of making the readers and the editorial closer together and it gave them someone to identify with. You were known for what we would now call publicity stunts though. I mean, there's a famous one, I think with 2000 AD, where you took um, the editor, is it, is it Karg, Tharg, um, uh, to Downing Street. But also I think with the, with the other titles, you weren't afraid of seeking publicity deliberately with, with what we would now call stunts. I think, I'm, I think that's fair to say. So just explain your philosophy on that and the type of things that you did. Well, that all started when I went to management and said, look, can we advertise these comics much more than we are now? Because comics are only advertised in other comics. And I thought it'd be great if we could take adverts in other publications to bring people's attention to what we were producing at that time. And I was told there's no budget whatsoever for that. So I went away and had a think. I thought, well, let's get some free publicity. I got Roy the Rovers to write a letter to the London Evening Standard. They printed it and responded to it. And I thought, hey, this is quite good. Let's do more of this. And eventually then I wrote things into the storyline which would get publicity. Like Roy the Rovers being the first boys comic hero to get married first boys comic hero to become a father. And each of those got us enormous publicity in newspapers, on television and radio. And it worked really well. In fact, one of the biggest PR schemes that I organized, it took me by surprise. It was when Roy's wife left him because he was spending too much time at the football club, not enough time with her. So she walked out, left his dinner in the oven and said she'd gone home to mum. And when that story appeared, ITN phoned me that morning and said, we want you on the lunchtime news to talk about this. And BBC said, come on to BBC in the evening. We discuss this at great length. And uh, it was interesting to see that sort of response. It didn't have to be a major thing, like the Royal of Rover shooting, which I'll talk about later, just because his wife left him. It was a major, major story. When I got to the BBC that night, they gave me a, a Roy the Rover's rosette to wear, a um, Roy the Rover's scarf, and a very strange hat, which I refused to wear. They um, fitted me out in Roy the Rover's gear to answer all the questions. 
and it was quite interesting how seriously they took the subject. That's interesting because I think I'm right in saying that when Roy the Rovers got, the, got his own title in 76, you deliberately went more into his backstory, his off-the-pitch life was reflected almost as much as his on-the-pitch life. And that I didn't realise that that hadn't really been done before. You know, now we've, got, we've had shows like Footballers, Footballers' Wives and things like that, and the backstory to a footballer is shown dramatically. And then even though this was not real life, it was a comic, you were going into it in a way that hadn't been done before. So what was the theory behind that? Because I wanted to make Roy the Rovers real, I wanted to give him a life on the pitch and off the pitch. His life on the pitch, I wanted him to have all the ups and downs of a real-life footballer. In the old days, in the first episode of the story, Roy would say, let's try and win the FA Cup this year, lads. And you knew full well in the last instalment they would win the FA Cup. But I had them winning and losing matches. And then we moved on to off the pitch where, we had, as I said, we had Roy becoming a father, getting, ma getting married, becoming a father. Um, things were happening to him, which happened to the families of the readers. But I've also heard you talk about the importance of the parent buy. You weren't just appealing to the kids. You had to make the comic as a whole wholesome because you had to appeal to, it was probably the dad in fairness, in, in 1976 and the 80s. It's probably my dad, to be honest. Um, but he, he needs to at least approve it. If, if not, uh, try and grab a sneaky, sneaky peek after me. <laughs> so there was that balance, wasn't there? You, you had the off-the-field stuff, which may be not exactly unwholesome, but more gritty. And then you've got to maintain the wholesomeness that would get parents approving of this for their kids. It's a balance. Yes, it was very important to have the publications as parent buyers. To get dad reading it was half the battle. Once dad wanted to read it, he didn't mind it being delivered with the morning newspaper. And that was a big thing for us to get it regularly delivered so it wasn't a casual sale. So get it delivered with the newspapers, let the son and the dad have a race to get to the copy first to see who could read it first get the parents on side and make sure that what we published was wholesome, but modern to appeal not only to, to the, the young readers, but to their parents as well. And the other ploy tactic, whatever you want to call it that, that you employed, I've heard you talk about this is you tried to make all the readers feel Melchester were your local team whether you lived in Newcastle or Plymouth or Brighton or Caerphilly, Anglesey, they were your local team. How, how did you do that? Because I've seen, I've seen rock bands try and say that we're your local band. They do the same thing. That, that sort of pulling that, that, uh, that trick off of making you feel it's local to you is something really hard to do. And you managed to do it with Melchester. So, so how did you do that? Well, you've summed it up very well, really, that Melchester was always your local team. Go out of your house, turn around the corner, there's Melchester Stadium. It's your local club. 
So it was important that Roy never spoke with an accent or we get, never gave any hint out whereabouts in the country Manchester was. And it's just around the corner from me and it's just around the corner from you. So it's your local team. So no matter what was happening to your local team in real life, you had a second chance at it with another local team, which is Melchester Rovers. And just getting back to the parent bio, there was another question I wanted to ask there, is there was this concept that if you got through the difficult first 10 to 15 years, which I'm sure were very difficult, uh, with any sort of character, once you got through those and moving on, then suddenly the the kids were having kids and those generations were sustaining it. And it became almost a, uh, not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it, it, it became um, a story that sustained itself through generations. Cause as you say, you appeal to the dads that or the parents, that's particularly important. And it's an easier sell if they consumed it themselves when they're kids, right? Yes, indeed. Of course, eventually it became the dads and the granddads. We probably even made some great granddads at some stage. But yes, get, get, get them all on side and let them want to read it. So it was important that the storylines weren't too childish, they were true to life. And the involvement in celebrities in the stories as well. That was important because television was becoming more and more important to children. And they could see these celebrities on screen and they could also see them in their comic as well. I was going to talk about television because that was becoming increasingly important. It, it, um, when uh, when I was growing up, you know, more kids were watching television, and it was how we were getting our sports news, our sports information. And of course, you had deadlines, which meant you need to print a certain amount in advance, so you can't be as current. Did that dynamic affect the popularity of uh, Tiger and Roy the Rovers? Because, you know, for periods of time, you were getting, what, 300, 350,000 copies sold a week. And it, it, it tapered off, by my understanding, in the 80s. And I'm thinking that television and its immediacy uh, was sort of pecking away at a weak spot for comics. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? Yes, certainly we had a long lead up time. We sent stuff to the printers six weeks before publication date. So we, we could never be up to date with any sports storylines. I mean, our Christmas issue, we had to plan two months before Christmas. And who knows what's going to happen in the meantime. But uh, fortunately, we, I can't remember a case of us being caught out and printing something which changed in the meantime. So we were able to overcome that, that build-up, but certainly as television got more and more important in a child's life and computers came in as well, suddenly we were facing enormous competition. It wasn't our rival comics which was causing the problem, it was computers and television and the electronic gadgets that were around. And also at this period of time, when your circulation is starting to dwindle a little bit, certainly in comparison to what it used to be. English football is going through a very difficult time here. It's got various disasters going on, stadium disasters, hooliganism and things like that. So how did you cater for those? Did you consider those as issues? Did you take them on board? 
did you were you aggressive towards them in any way? Certainly, um, with hooliganism, Roy had very strong views, and sometimes we would devote most of an issue to him lecturing people that there was no place for hooliganism in football. As I say, he had very strong views, and we had the backing of the Football Association as well. I can remember the FA writing to me and saying, we've never entirely agreed with Roy the Rovers before, but we do in this case. So I took that as a compliment. You also had Roy's son, who I think I'm right in saying had storylines involving drink and drugs as well. So, you know, why did you go down that route? Because that may be against the wholesome side of it, but it, it was probably more a reflection of the issues in wider society at, at the time. So what was the thought process in bringing those storylines in? Well, I'm delighted to say that those storylines came along after my time. Ah, they, right. they wouldn't have happened in my time. I arranged for Roy Jr. to appear on the scene, but I certainly had no intention of him being the character he turned out to be. So I didn't agree with that at all. Uh, I so, so what were your ethics with regard to the story then? If you weren't touching that, then what was the, what was the thought process? What were your reasoning? What was your moral compass behind the stories that Roy Race should be involved in? It, it was true to life stories up to a certain extent. We could have things like him getting married and becoming a father and his wife leaving him and so on. But nothing too sordid, I suppose, is the word. I mean, we did things like Roy the Rovers getting shot which was another major PR scheme. And uh, to get Sir Ralph Ramsey to come in as manager of Melchester Rovers was another remarkable achievement. Because you don't associate Sir Ralph Ramsey with comics. But it turned out he was a great fan of Roy the Rovers. So when I asked him if he'd stand in for Roy, he was delighted to do so. And we sent him the scripts and we sent him the artwork each week. He never asked for any alteration whatsoever. So that was a, a great a great relationship. But what a status symbol to get him to take over Melchester Rovers. See, I'd, I'd read he, he not asked for alterations, but he was very aware of the technique of the player in the, in the graphic and he would be saying to you, I'd read this, so tell me if it's wrong, but that he would be saying, well, no, he's leaning too far back there. That ball would go over the bar. It wouldn't go in the net. Did, is that not true? Is that, did, did that not happen? I have no recollection of that ever being asked for. So we put that one straight. Anyway. things printed. Well, the interesting thing about Roy Race being in a, in a coma, he was shot, and please tell me the story of that in a minute, but he was shot... Alf Ramsey took over. They won 14 nil. The crowd noise was played in the hospital room and it brought Roy out of a coma. That was the, that was the end of the story. But what was the genesis of that story around the shooting? That, that was a great storyline. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had lots of meetings with Tom Tully, who was the author of Roy the Rovers. And we built in lots of characters into the story all of whom were slightly suspicious in the sense that it could have been them that shot Roy. So at the time he was shot, there were about 12 characters it could have been. 
but in the end it turned out to be Elton Blake, who was a TV actor, who played the part of Roy the Rovers in a TV series, but became very jealous of Roy and uh, did the shooting, slightly unbalanced at the time. And it was based around Dallas and uh, the soap opera of the 80s, am I right in thinking? It was quite similar to that, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was shot JR, who shot RR. <laughs> How did you keep the stories fresh? Because you must have been going over old ground continually, must you? Or, or at least just tweaking it a little bit. So it must be a very hard job. Yes, as I say, I had regular meetings with Tom Tully, the author. Um, he'd come up to the office and we'd sit down for a couple of hours go through the storyline on the pitch and off the pitch, see any celebrities that we're going to evolve in the storyline. And that took a lot of working out because we had to fit it in with the real dates of football, with the cup dates and league dates and so on. And uh, we'd get it mostly sorted out in the office, then go out and have the most marvellous long lunch and just dot the I's and cross the T's and uh, it was done in a very civilised manner, but most enjoyable. How much did the business side, the suits, as we would say, in modern parlance, how much did they try and control the artwork just to make it sell? Not the artwork, the stories, the whole comic, just to make it sell. And, and how did you balance up the need to be a business and the need to create art that would be enticing, engaging, and would also sell, of course. Well, it's very fortunate because I was working for IPC magazines, which at that time was the largest publishing house in Europe. Therefore, there was a massive staff there and lots of people whose sole job was on the business side. My sole job was the editorial side. I never got involved in the business side and I never got any pressure at all about what the storyline should be about. So that was very good. I was free, just about to do what I wanted. Now, Roy Race had a helicopter crash and lost his left foot. And that wasn't too long before the magazine ended in 1995. You weren't in control then, but... Most certainly not. No, I've, I've, I've thought, yeah. yeah. I, I've um, listened to interviews and it's clear that was not in your uh, ethic, your idea, your vision of what Roy Race should be. But what were, what were your emotions when, when the comic ended? I was very sad. I'd been sad for a long time watching how it was developing, the storylines, and the helicopter crash was probably one of the worst decisions made in the history of children's comics, I think. I mean, to take your main hero and have him lose a foot not only just any foot, but his left foot, which was Race's rocket. Um, to do that, it's too final. If you're gonna, if a publication is gonna stop appearing, find some other way to end the storyline so you can bring him back when necessary. But this was much too final. Yeah, it's always important to leave the door open and they did seem to slam it shut and lock it when they, uh when they lose the very foot that scored all the goals for, for decades. Yes, indeed. <laughs> One thing I didn't realise in your career, that you actually went on to have another massive football success with Scorer 
which was it began in 1989. It was a comic strip in the mirror, 22 years of that. And that was a comic strip. So it was four or five panels. Forgive me if I've got the logistics of that wrong. But um, that was also had great longevity. So what part of Roy Race was involved in Scorer? How was, how was the lessons of Roy Race and Tiger brought into Scorer to make it such a success? Well, Scorer lasted 22 years, as you say, six days a week. It started off as a single strip. Then as it became more popular, it was a double strip. And by the time it finished, it was three strips together. So it was quite a big chunk. Um, I bought in, I wrote all the scripts and I was able to bring in artists who'd worked with me on the comics. So we always had a very high standard of artwork and the continuity of me doing all the scripts. And obviously I used a lot of the stuff I'd learned from the comics, how to do a story and give it a good ending each day so people wanted to read the following day. But Scorer was able to do things which Roy couldn't do. There were a lot more girls in the Scorer story. He had lots of girlfriends. And no one ever noticed that each girl that appeared in the story, I was going through the alphabet. The first girl was Annabelle, the second one's Beverly, and so on. So we went through the alphabet. I think we went through the alphabet about three times altogether. It was very fortunate that the artists that we used, uh, John Gillett and David Skew, were both able to draw pretty girls very well indeed. So it got to the stage where Scorer's long-term girlfriend began to be more popular than him. And I knew that because I run two fan clubs, the Scorer fan club and the Eureka fan club, which is the name of his long-term girlfriend. And her fan club got more popular than Dave's for some extraordinary reason. In your time, were comics looked down upon as an artistic, creative medium because it strikes me now it's comics that are underpinning the hollywood movie industry it's just that they are superhero comics well it's it's still a fantastical comic yours were just sport based and yet at the time they were just comics do you feel that was true at the time and do you feel it's changed at all i think we were able to increase the status of comics by all the pr we got I mean, in the early days, I think people looked down on comics, but we got to a stage where teachers were very keen that the children read comics, because at least they were reading something. And as we did more and more PR, and more and more famous people got involved with the comics, it made people, certainly in the media, look twice. Because in the early days, again, there was an awful lot of criticism of the contents of comics. As their status grew, that criticism, it faded away. You didn't see it happening. Of course, talking to celebrities again, not only was I bringing in the top sports stars of the day, I started to bring in the show business people of the day. I mean, more common wise. At the height of their popularity, I signed Eric to appear in Roy the Rovers and Ernie to appear in Tiger. And that worked very well. <laughs> bringing show business into the comics. 
And again, people were saying, well, how on earth did you get Morecambe and Wise to agree to this? I just asked them. Would Roy Race and Roy of the Rovers work today? Well, uh, my friends at Rebellion Publishing at Bordell, Roy the Rovers, virtually from the start again, uh, modernising the storyline, but starting Roy from where we started in 1954. And they're producing new style artwork, new style stories. It's a question you should ask them whether it's working or not, because I'm not involved in that at all. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more of a graphic novel, isn't it, in, in its style? It is, because yeah. we, we did true-to-life artwork, and theirs is just a little bit different from that. But it's also being used as, if not a, a tool to develop reading skills, but certainly uh, an incentive for kids to read again. Um, and it's, it's interesting because when I was reading Tiger and borrowing my brother's Roy the Rovers, it was all about read, read books, don't bother with, you know, don't watch too much ta television and don't read comics um, because television makes your eyes go square and comics numb your brain. Well, now we're using graphic novels of essentially the same story to get our kids reading, to get them off screens of all sorts, be it social media, be it, be it websites or be it gaming. It's just interesting the way that your stories or stories you're involved in are, are, are still being used because it's still important for kids to have imaginations and, and not consume media where every part of the story is filled in. They need to have gaps to fill it in themselves. Yes, it's um, very interesting in the amount of school involvement there is with the rebellion publications they're doing a lot of stuff with schools and that seems to be working very well to be very popular and a whole new generation is learning about Roy the Rovers not knowing anything at all about the history of the character talking of the history of the character I should ask you a question if you could remember what your favorite stories were is this where you do your feedback and you ask me our two favourite stories? Um, well, I used to, I used to enjoy um, stories or the characters? The stories. Well, stories and characters. Yeah, I mean, I remember Hotshot Hamish. I remember Billy's Boots. I always liked Blackie Grey, who was kind of Roy Race's sidekick. Yes, I um, did. He's a very reliable guy. Yes, very, very reliable guy. Um, now, I, there was a story about this. Skid Solo was slightly before my time. I was interested in a story I heard you say where you liked Skid Solo and you thought it was great, but the kids didn't like it, so you cut it, and it was one of the hardest decisions you made. And that's just interesting, the lesson of feedback there, that you were prepared to make that decision. And in content strategy, we, we talk about killing your darlings. You killed your darling in Skid Solo, who was one of, you know, slightly before my time, and I'm aware of him. Because the numbers, the metrics told you he wasn't popular, right? No, it's a very difficult decision. Very difficult to find the artist and tell him after all the years of him drawing that character that uh, it was to be no more. Yeah, so Billy's Boots I always used to like. And I used to like, um, as I say, I read Jeff Boycott a lot uh, in there. I remember doing a couple of his drills, um, which I think were told in picture stories rather than artwork, photo stories rather, rather than artwork, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong. 
Was there um, a wrestler, a Native American wrestler? Johnny Cougar. Johnny Cougar. I remember Johnny Cougar fighting over a huge ravine and the uh, ring was held on four sort of pieces of rope or very taut elastic. And basically, if he got chucked out the ring, I've forgotten who he was fighting, he would fall to his death. The loser would fall to his death. I'm glad you picked that one out because that's a story I wrote. Well, fantastic. Because I, I must have... you to come up with one of my stories. <laughs> I must have been uh, six or seven, but I remember the particular piece of artwork as well. Obviously, I remember the story. Uh, Johnny Cougar, I remember. Um, because there was a bit of wrestling in there because wrestling was big at the time. Obviously, World of Sport, Kent Walton and all that kind of thing. And uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is this fantastic story. I'll just ask you another question quickly about, because you relaunched the Eagle and Tiger went out of business or sort of got sucked into the Eagle in the eighties. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. And you had this incredible launch where Dan Dare fought the Mekon in the Wardorf hotel. And then for some reason that I need you to explain to me, big daddy came out. which which, you are the master of publicity barry i love it to bits but just tell me what what went on there because i just i i think that's great and talk about getting publicity when you don't have a marketing budget but tell me what happened with that one because it's because obviously big daddy uh britain's most famous wrestler in the 80s but yes of course um early on big daddy had fought against johnny cougar i've forgotten that okay over two or three weeks and uh that went down very well. Then I produced the Big Daddy Annual. So I knew him pretty well and I thought, let's bring him in to do the Eagle launch. Not someone you'd expect to do it, but someone who was a bit of a surprise. So we, we hired the, uh, the Waldorf and uh, we found that the ground floor was strong enough to take a vehicle. So we put a minivan there and had Big Daddy sitting on the bonnet of it with the first copies and have them burst through a screen, much to everybody's surprise because nobody expected a vehicle to be inside the hotel. So Big Daddy did that. And there were lots of pictures in the media next day, Big Daddy holding up the first issues. So that was quite successful. We also had someone playing the part of Dan Dare. Um, It was the one of the artist agents that we used that looked a bit like him. So we did his eyebrows and uh, gave him a space gun, which I pinched from my son. And uh, he was down there and Mekon, he was on a screen and we had someone else to do the voice of the Mekon. And when Big Daddy arrived with the first issue, he burst through the screen on which had been a picture of the Mekon. So that worked quite well. And we had um, games machines there for the media to to play on space adventures while they were waiting for the start of the launch. We had green cocktails to one of the Mekong. And uh, it it was a a big launch, but quite successful because we knew that launching Eagle would make all the original readers say, it's nothing like the original one, you know. Which they did, <laughs> but it was produced for a new time, new readership, and uh, I suppose the people that are now producing 
Lloyd the Rover's Rebellion said the same thing. They were producing an old character in a new way for a new generation. And we were certainly doing that in the Eagle. Of course, I was a, a reader of the original comic. It was always my ambition to bring it back. And I tried lots of times, but the management couldn't be persuaded. But eventually they were persuaded. I chose the right day to ask. And they gave me freedom to do that. And we launched the new Eagle with photo strips, which we were talking about television earlier. I thought that to have the stories told in photographs would make it as near to television as we could do it. But it turned out the readership didn't like photo stories, so we had to drop them after a couple of months and revert back to artwork, much to the delight of all the artists everywhere. <laughs> Will comics have their day again amongst the youth of today, or have they moved on to different types of media, screen-based media? Do comics work in, in screens? Could they work on screens? Could, is that a way to revive the business? That's one way. I think you still can't beat a printed copy because you can go back and look at it whenever you want. And it's there, no matter what room in, you can take it with you around the house and uh, you don't have to have a screen to look at it. So I think that there is a place for comics. There's so much interest now of people who want to write for comics and draw for comics. And a lot of people get in touch with me and I'm very impressed with the talent that they're showing. So I think comics could make a massive comeback. They're, they're, they're making a bit of a comeback at the moment. Certainly on Twitter, the people that get in touch with me talking about their new projects, it, it's very, very interesting what they're doing now. It's also interesting, of course, that the old readers get in touch with me and talk about the good old days. People still remember comedy, they still remember the contents, and that, that, that's a great compliment. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I remember one of the most exciting things I had as a kid was, uh, I think Tiger gave me £10 for, because I got, a, um, I got a letter in Tiger. I Did asked to compare, yeah, I asked, um, I've forgotten, I might have been asking, might have been asking Emily Hughes, I'm not sure, someone of that ilk anyway, to compare the qualities of the 1971 Arsenal side, I was an Arsenal fan and the modern mid-80s Liverpool side, about which was better. Uh, and I got a completely sit-on-the-fence type answer from whoever it was. But I did get the tenor. So that's a win as far as I'm concerned. For the 10-year-old for the well, me, that's a win. <laughs> Ten pounds is very generous. I'm sure it was ten pounds. Well, am I wrong? I, would you have given that away? 19, mid, it, might have been, it might have been early 80s. 80 to 83 or 4, I would think. It, was it a one-off competition or one of the regular competitions? I might have been star, it might have been star letter of the week. It might oh, have been what, whatever we that was. Week. <laughs> um, just final question, Barry. Your legacy, what do you, what do you want that to be? You know, how, do you, how do you want to be perceived in terms of, I suppose, that, let, let's talk about Tiger and, and, Roy, and, Roy, and Roy Race sports comics in the UK, that part of your career, how, how would you like to be perceived? Well, the boy and the rovers of publishing world. <laughs> um, but I like to be seen as someone who was happy to try something new, to try new ideas. Um, perhaps sometimes 
too much stuck in my ways. I didn't publish credits of the contributors to the stories. I should have done that earlier than I eventually did. But um, someone who was happy to try any subject for a comic, so we did the, the parent bias in Tiger Roy the Rovers, did the nostalgic one in the Eagle, then we did Scream, which was something totally different, which wasn't a parent bias. It was a bit scary. That was something different for me to try. So someone who would try anything, really. Well, thank you for Tiger and Roy the Rovers and Barry Tomlinson. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mr.